1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget you can listen live for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or on the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, a turning point for Turkey. It's all hanging in the balance. Is the Erdogan era coming to an end after 20 years or is he going to continue in power? We've got a very special big thing coming up today speaking to both our, our colleague Hannah and Lucinda Smith live in Turkey and also people who know the country well that's coming up in just a moment but first it's our columnist panel
2: The Columnists with Libby Rachy, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio
1: Right uh, let's turn our attention to the uh, I'm really interested in this this thing that's happening today the National Conservatism Conference taking place in London uh, it's been organised by a right-wing American think tank to discuss the future of the Tory party. Um, last week, I spoke to Paul Goodman, who's the editor of Conservative Home, sort of grassroots website. He told me he's not convinced the American ideology being discussed here will catch on in the UK. Let's take a listen. I mean, I've looked at their statements and principles and right in the middle of it is a statement that says, in, in Christian-majority countries, it says pretty plainly, uh, we believe people should be drawing their inspiration from the Bible. Now in america that's one thing you know i think here in the uk it's a bit of another and you have to ask a number of questions I mean, the first would be are we a christian majority country probably are in the sense of people who would culturally identify with christianity but in terms of church going church goings you know not a majority at all it's a it's a minority what do you think about this rachel the the the, the, the direct read across from Right-wing politics in America and right-wing politics in Britain it doesn't doesn't quite match.
3: No, com- I totally agree with Paul. The cultural backdrop is so different that I, uh, when um, there was that story last week about the robbers in Peru who they robbed a shoe shop and they ended up with loads of right-wing shoes and yes. they couldn't sell not right-wing right- right-footed, right-footed <laughs> shoes and they couldn't sell them because they were imbalanced. Yeah. And I think that that's a problem with this uh, conference and the kind of right-wing of the Tory party. Yeah. It's just uh, it's only one side of the foot, as it were, only one argument. Uh, And I think it's off-putting to too many voters and too shrill. And the irony of Jacob Rees-Mogg, who took his own nanny on the campaign trail, now saying, you know, it's unconservative to support childcare, presumably because um, for Christian values, you ought to have mothers staying at home. Yeah. Uh, looking after your six children, Um, it just seems, you know, that's fine if you're very, very rich. But actually, when, on the other hand, the government's trying to get people to go out to work to fill the skill shortages, including presumably women, uh, the the whole thing doesn't stack up. It's sort of incoherent. uh, It's off-putting and
4: in many ways wrong.
1: Right. Incoherent, off-putting and wrong. What do you think, Libby?
4: Absolutely. I mean, uh, there, there's a book called We Are Not America. I mean, that should be everybody's motto, just because it's bigger. You don't have to assume that somehow it's got things right. The American right is very different from our right, thank God. I mean, our right is bad enough, but the American right is, uh, Bible right is pretty terrible. Um, it, it's it's an extraordinary sense of lack of confidence, which I get off this. You know, we uh, we are in this unconfident situation at the moment a lot of people got us out of Europe so that we could organize ourselves as a fine independent country sadly those same people now prove unable to organize out of a paper bag or think longer term than the next party leadership row and so they flail around and uh, call in all these uh, very bigoted bible bashers um, who are not interested in human happiness or human understanding and uh, I I wish they would not involve themselves it's
1: interesting We sort of think about the Kate Forbes uh, debate and her religion and faith becoming such a big part of the the, the SNP leadership contest, and everyone felt a bit sort of squeamish about it. That actually, in America, you know, citing God, invoking God and faith in your politics is seen as a vote winner. It's clearly we saw the, the, the sort of reaction to it. It's clearly not a vote winner here.
4: Yeah, was just at, one line, there's just one line in the Bible, by their fruits shall ye know them. Yeah. You know, judge people by what they do and the effect they have, not by what they say about religion. Oh, it was Alistair
3: Campbell who famously mm. said, we don't do God, and trying to make sure Tony Blair didn't go on about it too much because he worried it would be off-putting. But I think there's, there is a sort of shift towards trying to fight Culture wars in this country over trans issues, over small boats. Um, now, from Jacob Rees-Mogg over whether or not women should go out to work, apparently, wow. um, and I think that backfires. I just don't think it's relevant to people who are on the breadline trying to, you know, find the money to buy the food and pay the energy bills. It just seems like a sort of luxury to have those issues actually discussed as a priority. And you saw, I think, one reason Nicola Sturgeon um, ended up being drummed out was because she tried to make that a big issue that over. The trans issue and and it just doesn't capture the mood. It's not where people are. It's where politicians are. A few, a few politicians, but actually, I don't think it's where the mainstream majority is in
1: Britain. The other thing that was interesting about this is the organizer of it have been noting they've sold eight hundred, a thousand tickets, which they think is bigger than anything. Uh, that you normally see on the right, albeit, I think, you know, Tory leadership hustings, which we've had quite a lot of lately, uh, do attract, you know, large numbers. And they've been likening it to what happens on the left, Momentum and Jeremy Corbyn and stuff. Part of me think that maybe they're learning the wrong lesson of that. Sort of overly engaged, uh, radical, extreme political views in a conference where everyone agrees with each other seems to be at odds from the fact that Actually, if you look at recent, well, quite distant political history, you win from the centre, not by drifting out to some sort of extreme position.
4: Absolutely, I mean, the, the centre is the centre tends to be sensible because it has not tied itself down to um hard ideologies um but I mean I I am uh, I was banging on our organization just now it is about pragmatism it is about doing things right it is about making Britain work making things work at every level from the civil service down to you know the, the public utilities the privatized utilities all the rest of it things are not working that is what people mostly care about they do not care about Airy fairy theories either left or right religious or atheist people care less about that than about things just working so they can get on with
1: their lives yeah and i suppose and and uh, it's the the it feels a little bit like the last sort of dying remnants of the of the liz Truss government you know uh, effort as well sort of trying to revive all of that again actually oh we still need to cut taxes you know jake monk's been talking about the blob this morning this idea that the reason rishi sunak hasn't gone ahead with scrapping eu laws is because of the blob um, well, they, d-
3: and they tried that. They tried Liz yeah. Truss's agenda and it was an absolute economic disaster for the country and we're still paying the price, just in the same way that the Labour Party tried Jeremy Corbyn's ideology and it was rejected yeah. in the most you know, catastrophic way for Labour at the ballot box. So, it, in the end, sensible wins through.
1: Yeah, I was going to well, say on, on, the, on, the, on the Jeremy Corbyn question, tell that to Noam Chomsky, um, <laughs> uh, as I try to. Uh, right, let's, let's talk about Labour. Uh, really interesting. That we've had a sort of flurry of, you know, post local elections, a flurry of possible uh, policy ideas uh, being thrown out by Labour. This one over the weekend Labour's considering giving Britain's a legal right to work from home if it wins the next election. Uh, you'd also be able to um, not look at your emails or messages. At the weekends, or when you work, uh, or weekend, or in the evenings. Uh, policy of making flexible work of the default options, part of an 86 page compilation of policies. Uh, apparently, this was Labour's shadow business secretary, Jonathan Reynolds, speaking to Times Radio. We've seen uh, similar laws passed, I think, in France, in Italy, in Spain. I think Belgium is just doing something very similar at the moment. So there's a conversation going on about how do we react to a world where technology makes it easier to contact people at all times. You've obviously got to respect the fact that there are jobs with anti-social hours. There are times when some jobs, I mean, when I'm prepared to come on a show like yours, I'm obviously working quite late and my staff are involved in that. So you've got to understand that complexity. But there are different approaches to this. It might not necessarily be a mandatory approach. It might be a, a code of conduct to begin with. But we'll look at that as part of the process. So Libby, I did the obvious thing when I saw that story over the weekend and I shared it with the team uh, in all of the WhatsApp groups uh, just to, just while I still could before it was still legal. <laughs> Do you think uh, we should have a legal right to not be contacted by our employers?
4: Uh, I think uh, it, it's a lot is down to individual contracts and individual employers. I am very wary of things which remove any element of choice um, from employers about what they want and what they need. I mean, I think individual contracts should be fair. I think, you know, European employment law has done everyone a lot of favours. But I do think that uh, this idea of carrying it <clears throat> carrying it that far uh, is is a mistake. I don't think you should be leaning on employers to make their lives more and more and more difficult because it's harder and harder and harder for people to get interesting good jobs now. Um, I I just think it'll lead to automation, it'll lead to AI being brought in much faster and so on. I'm not in favour of it.
1: Actually, Rachel, I thought that if if the flexible working comes, some of that will come with, you know, yes, you can work from home or work in the office, but some of you can work when you want to, as long as you get your work done. So how do you communicate? Either you've got fixed working hours and everyone's in the office and you're all doing it at the same time, or it's all a bit more fluid. I think maybe there's a right, that you don't have to respond to that email or message. But if you're someone who prefers working very early in the morning, you want to send your emails on the understanding that someone's going to pick them up later.
3: Yeah, exactly. That's what I always say to everyone is is, is with my colleagues. Is um, I may send emails at weird times, but you don't have to reply. until so you're working at <laughs> your. But I think there's there's sort of fl- flexibility involves people working at strange times. So there are two sides of the yeah. coin, um, and there are also certain jobs where you can do that, and and other jobs where you can't. So if you're writing a piece. You you can do it at midnight if you want to. Yeah. And I have done sometimes all five in the morning or whatever, but in order to go to a school play or in order yeah. to do something else that you have to do. But if you're presenting a radio show or an, on the factory production line, you can't do it at midnight <laughs> or 5am unless yeah. those are the hours. So it's, I think that there's a danger of kind of applying a blanket rule. And I think it has to be a bit flexible.
1: I'm glad that you likened to the idea of presenting a radio show to working <laughs> on a factory conveyor belt, just uh, just waving it all through. Um, Libby, there's this other idea that, that, that Labour are also badly looking at, extending the voting franchise to migrants who live in the UK permanently, as well as lowering the voting age to 16. Um, they've slightly walked back from this, saying it's something they're going to look at rather than definitely do, but it's a good idea.
4: I think the 16 thing is is bonkers. I don't think 16-year-olds should be burdened with having to uh, read with great care <laughs> all the party manifestos. They've got exams to pass they've got lives to lead they've got love lives to organize i i think uh, 18 is fine um i don't know the eu migrants thing is fascinating i mean i suppose uh why not just uh, sort of say would you like to be nationalized you will yeah. lose all rights in your own country have rights in ours i don't think having full rights in two countries at once is something that many people would really accept uh know, also, as, yeah. as reasonable and it does you know seem you, you can fun. you can vote in one place not the other do you want to be British okay lovely come and be British welcome but you're now British yeah what do you think Rachel I think I
3: agree actually and I think if you start fiddling around with the franchise it looks like you're trying to sort of win by changing who's voting rather than winning by the power of your argument um and it's obviously
1: led to claims that it's all so that Labour can have an EU referendum or vote to go back in
3: exactly and with the the 16 year olds I think there's it's better to have a sort of clear age of 18 you're an adult these are the things you can do at 18, including other things, you know, changing your gender, uh, voting, all the things that you do at 18 rather than yeah. slipping everything to 16.
1: Well, we'll see what, how much of those things that they're looking at actually end up happening. Uh, Suzanne says, you use delayed send on your email. It's weird to receive emails at weekends in the early hours. I didn't even know that was a thing. It's
3: a good idea, oh, yeah. yeah. Thanks,
1: Suzanne. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there and of course you can read the stories we're discussing just hit the link in the podcast description and subscribe to the times at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Box. up next Turkey at a turning point
0: That's O-S-E-A, Malibu.com, code GLOW.
1: You're listening to The Redbox Podcast now. Time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So Turkey is at a turning point. Its hotly contested presidential election appears to be heading for a runoff as neither of the two main candidates cleared the 50% threshold to avoid a second round. After 20 years in power, Recep Tayyip Erdogan believes he will hold on to power. Here he is speaking to supporters in
5: Ankara. If our nation has made its choice in favour of the second round of the election, then that is also welcome. We believe that we will finish this round with over
1: 50% of the vote. However, his key rival, Kamar Kilic De remains confident of ending the Erdogan era. Well, let's begin by going live to Istanbul. Hannah Lucinda-Smith is the Times' correspondent there. Hannah, bring us up to date. What? Wh- where are we with the counting of the results?
6: So, the counting is nearly completed. The main thing that is outstanding is the votes from overseas. There are about 1.5 million votes being cast overseas. Um, it's actually much like the election generally. It's been one of the highest turnouts in the history of Uh, Turkish elections, and that could be enough to swing it for President Erdogan uh, in the first round, to take him above 50%. But at the moment, as it stands, we've got President Erdogan taking the biggest share of the vote. He's got just over 49%, but it's not enough uh, to win it outright. So if it stays as it stands, those presidential elections are going to go to a second round on May the 28th. In the parliamentary elections, however, it does seem that President Erdogan's ruling coalition has just managed to scrape a working majority. And I mean just scrape. They did not take 50% um, of the overall votes, but they have managed to just take a majority of seats in the parliament.
1: And that's pretty significant in and of itself, isn't it? A sign that this concerted effort by opposition parties hasn't broken the, the dominance of Erdogan, albeit only by by sort of a a hair's breadth.
6: Yeah, well, of course, I mean, we're all still trying to unravel exactly, uh, you know, what has happened. Mm. Um, Mm. Clearly, last night, I mean, it was just incredibly confusing. We were getting basically two entirely different results feeds, one of them from Anadolu, the state news agency, Um, They have the official monopoly on it on uh, broadcasting the first results from the polling stations. But like almost every media outlet in Turkey, they've been sort of brought to uh, Erdogan's heel. They're pretty much just a propaganda outlet. Um, And what they've done in the past, as they did last night, is to show Erdogan's strongholds kind of going into the lead first um, to make it appear like he's kind of going to an unassailable victory margin. at the same time, we were having uh, results from an opposition-linked news source. They were also taking the counts from the polling stations, putting results out. The opposition were giving statements. Um, and they were saying for a long time that Kilish was actually ahead. Um, now, what's happened as uh, time's gone on is that those two results have basically converged. Um, that's what we're expecting. What we weren't expecting was for Kilishtarolu to get such a low... Uh, uh, percentage of the vote, he's got around forty five percent. The final polls on Friday and Saturday, the day before the election, were showing him going as high as almost fifty two percent. So clearly, you know, the opposition have not done nearly as well as they thought they were going to do, and certainly in the parliament, not coming anywhere near getting, yeah, you know, even with the support of other parties, anywhere near getting. Um, a working majority in the parliament. Now, one thing that some people have suggested is that, um, you know, the opposition's tactic of building this broad coalition, which honestly is the only way that you can defeat Erdogan. The reason why Erdogan has been in power for 20 years is that his opposition has always been really, really divided and he's been very good at playing the fractures between them. He he and his party are still on their own the most popular uh, individual and party in Turkish politics. Um, so, yeah, I mean, building this kind of broad coalition was the only way that the opposition could go about trying to beat him. But what some analysts are suggesting is that actually that's what what has put some voters off. Included in this opposition coalition is both quite extreme nationalists um, who've broken away from uh, a party that's close to Erdogan's party, you know, very, very hard line about things like the Kurdish issue. And then you also have, the main Kurdish party who are supporting Kilis This is the, the HDP. Um, it's a political party, but it's accused by Erdogan and by nationalists of being linked to the PKK, uh, an armed terrorist organisation in Turkey. And that could have been the thing that really just pulled support away from Kilis at the last moment. Just to try and explain
1: to-, to, uh, to listeners how it is that Erdogan remains so popular Given that during his uh t- I mean, most recently we've seen we talked last week about how high inflation has been. I mean, we think that high inflation's high in the UK at ten percent. It's been I think we were talking about being over a hundred percent for some things. Um, alongside the, you know, the the what happened with the earthquake, both what appeared to be the terrible building standards, but also the reaction to it. There seem to be a lot of things in the negative uh column for Erdogan that we we know about. What is the positive? How is it that he's managed to to cement such extraordinary levels of support.
6: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it can look baffling from outside the country, and honestly, it, it often looks baffling from inside the country <laughs> uh, as well. I've been here for ten years, and I'm still trying to answer this question. Um, here's the thing: Erdogan is not a normal politician. He, when you go and speak with his really fanatical supporters, they they call him the Pegamber. It means prophet. They wow. literally see yeah. him as a man who. Is here to change Turkey. You know, Turkey. It was founded as a as a republic a century ago in the ashes of the Ottoman Empire. Founded, you know, in a really kind of revolutionary way as a secular um, republic. The the founder Kemal Ataturk really tried to. Kick Islam out of public life, really clamp down on the, you know, pious part of the society, and that carried on for decades. Um, you know, watched over by the military, who every time a politician seemed to be getting a little bit too close to Islamism, would basically, you know, launch a coup and overthrow them. Now Erdogan is just the latest in a long line of Turkish politicians who've got Islamist sympathies, openly Islamist sympathies, you know, wanting to, you know, take Turkey back towards a more Kind of conservative kind of society and and in some cases politics, but he is the only one who has managed to overcome the military. He did that in two stages. In the first decade of his rule, by um, by launching uh, a series of court cases against some top generals who were accused of coup plotting, and then in 2016. By managing to overthrow the coup attempt against him, and again launching a huge purge of the armed forces, also of the public sector. Um, so, you know, for this part of the country, is so interesting. When I go and talk to for example very very conservative women um who are fanatical about erdogan they will say to me things like you know if the opposition came back to power we wouldn't be allowed to wear our headscarves again you know headscarf women used to be banned from going to university banned from working in public office you know they really have this visceral fear that that's going to be where Turkey goes back to. You talk to the opposition, and that's just not the case. There are headscarfed women within the opposition party. Um, But, you know, Erdogan's personal appeal as the man who really came to fight for the rights of this really long-oppressed conservative majority, I would say, in Turkey, um you know that's not going anywhere and that's what he manages to play on and of course when you've got as much control over the message as he has you know i think people like to dismiss um traditional media and say oh well it doesn't matter these days there's social media etc it still really really matters you know the opposition they do really well when it comes to publicizing themselves on social media because it's about the only channel they have left and when you look at their videos of their rallies compared to Erdogan's, they're getting you know 10 100 times as many views but they're getting absolutely no airtime on the television. Or if they are, it's in the framing of, um, you know, what Erdogan wants people to think about them. And, you know, whenever I go to Anatolia, to the conservative parts of the country, every shop, every restaurant that you walk in, it's these television channels that are playing.
1: Just just finally, Hannah, um, what's the atmosphere like where you are now? And how do you think this will play out if after all the... The expectation, at least, of a possible end to the Erdogan era, if that doesn't pan out, having got closer than than anyone has before, what would that mean for the sort of the mood, the long-term stability of of life in Turkey?
6: Yeah, I mean, things are pretty calm here right now. Um, Last night, actually, um, Erdogan supporters at some point pretty early on, around half half ten, eleven o'clock at night, had decided, I think, that he had won again and they started coming out into the streets with their cars and flocking to party <laughs> headquarters and then um, sort of had to reverse ferret on their party but um But Erdogan did come out onto the balcony. You know, it's traditional that um, Turkish politicians, when they win an election, come out onto the balcony of their party headquarters and give a speech. And, you know, he was speaking as if he'd won outright in the first round. You know, he's accusing the opposition of manipulations, etc. The opposition have been really, really careful not to encourage their supporters on the streets they are really worried about you know violence perhaps if there's some kind of mass unrest and i think people are scared as well this is going to be a really tense two weeks if it does go to the runoff i think everybody is just going to be on edge
1: well, Hannah, um, thank you so much for explaining the, the background to all of that, and uh, no doubt we'll speak again as we get closer to uh, that runoff, if indeed it does happen. Hannah Lucinda Smith, there, the Times is uh, correspondent in Istanbul, uh, and as Hannah was explaining, as things currently stand right now, uh, uh, President Erdogan is on forty nine point four uh, percent in the uh, in the votes uh, counted so far, while his main rival Kemal Darulu is on 45%. We're taking a look at the Turkish elections, the presidential elections, hanging in the balance. Because it's not just the future of Turkey that depends on the outcome of this election. At the crossroads between Europe and the East, Turkey's key role in international relations is long established. And over his two decades in power, Erdogan has become an important player.
2: The fact that Europe can welcome... In Turkey and begin the process of negotiation for them to become a full member of the European Union is an historic event. I very much appreciate the opportunity to uh, once again meet with uh, Prime Minister, uh, former Prime Minister Erdogan, now President Erdogan, uh, and I want to congratulate him uh, on his election victory. Good morning.
4: Do we meet again? Very <laughs> <laughs>
2: really
4: nice to see you. Well, During my visit to Ankara in 2017.
6: We agreed to establish a trade working group to explore ways to liberalise and increase trade between the UK and Turkey. For what I hope
1: will be a new jumbo free trade deal between
6: the UK and Turkey. I want to particularly thank you for uh, what you did putting together the situation with regard to Finland and Sweden and all the incredible work you're doing.
1: Yes, the West has tried to hug uh, Turkey Turkey and Erdogan close, uh, but has it worked as the world watches on uh, and Turkey appears to be heading for a second vote? What are the consequences of this election? Well, I'm joined by Gallup Delay, Associate Fellow specialising in Turkey at Chatham House. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, We're also joined by Nick Baird, who is the UK ambassador to Turkey from 2006-2009. Hi, Nick. Hi, there. And uh, Catherine Philp, The Times' is diplomatic correspondent, in us as well. Hi, Catherine. Hi,
4: Matt. Um,
1: Gallup, let's start with you. How would you define Turkey's role, both uh, geographically and sort of geopolitically, um, in a sort of a, a broker between Europe and the Middle East?
7: I think Turkey now represents, uh, to some extent, a, 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 a quite powerful trend in international affairs which is basically engaging in geopolitical balancing act between Russia, China, and the West when it comes to great power competition. So the Turkey is one of them. The India, to some extent, is another country. The Brazil is one of them. So you have, like, quite many countries that quite many significant powers in international affairs now engaging in a, uh, in a geopolitical balancing act between the West, Russia, and China. And I think Turkey very much exempla- uh, exemplifies it but Turkey has a unique characteristic because w- when you compare Turkey's action with all other uh, other actors' action, Turkey is a NATO member. So Turkey is not South Africa. Turkey is not Brazil. Turkey is not India. Turkey is a NATO uh, member. So that makes this whole story even much more interesting. And just look at turkey russian relationship. And historically speaking, yes, Turkey always tried to have very good relationship with Russia. Yes, Turkey always tried to have you know economic energy with russia even during the heyday of the cold war era even during the presidency or the prime minister of the pro-western actors such as you know Turgut azal or, or uh, Suleiman Demirel. but there are some novelties in the recent uh, in the recent uh, relation between president erdogan and president putin one is that the fact that you can now buy the uh buys the sophisticated weapon system from russia uh, the, in the form of the s-400 system while at the same time being a nato member that Turkey engages in significant geopolitical cooperation when it comes to regional conflict management mechanisms, be it in Syria, be it in Libya, be it in Nagorno-Karabakh. Now that you see that Turkey and Russia developing very closer ties when it comes to sensitive technologies, such as the nuclear power plant, which actually the both countries unveiled on uh, uh, Turkey's first nuclear power plant on 27th of uh, of, uh, April. So in this respect there are you know when we say geopolitical balancing act that comes across as a cliche because this is a term that you hear uh, very often nowadays when it comes to while different regional actors are taking the position on the war in ukraine particularly Uh, but i think uh, when we when we use this term we have to define what it means and i think in the context of turkey these are the three factors that may be unique uh, and also so different from the geopolitical balancing act uh, pursued by Brazil or, yeah. or India or uh, or uh, South Africa,
1: um, Nick. Let, let me bring you bring you in on this. It was interesting listening to all those clips of world leaders welcoming Erdogan on the on the world stage. You you met him several times when you were the ambassador. Have you been surprised by the direction of Turkey on his watch? Actually, more since since you you left Turkey in two thousand and nine. There's this dr- drift. Well, i suppose Drift to suggested it wasn't deliberate, but move towards an autocracy Have you been surprised by that
2: so certainly in 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 the period i was um in turkey two thousand and six two thousand nine it's a very positive period um and Turkey was very much looked at as a sort of model um for for other you know muslim majority countries as a possible you know democratic model um uh you know and, and a successful prosperous uh democratic model. Um, you know, it is, it is less that now. Um, clearly, um, you know, we've, we, we've seen a lot more restrictions on freedom of expression. We've seen a lot of arrests of the opposition and so on. I don't particularly see that, you know, changing if, if, if Erdogan, um, if, if, if Erdogan stays in power as, as, as looks likely. Um, th- that, that said, nor, nor would I see, um, Turkey kind of, you know, becoming a Russia or a China. Yeah. Um, I think it's still, Um, at at a stage where, you know, Erdogan is a shrewd judge of how far he can go, um, in these areas without causing, you know, serious, serious internal unrest that would be difficult for him to control or indeed losing his, um, you know, foot in the Western camp, which, you know, is very important for him. I think Gallup described it very well. I mean, Turkey wants to keep one foot in the Western camp, one foot in the Eastern camp, because that's what gives it power, um, demonstrating to each side that it can influence the other. Um,
1: Catherine, I want to come into you just a moment. I want to revisit Turkey's particular role in in British politics. It came up a lot during the 2016 Brexit referendum. And the question of whether or not Turkey was going to join the EU and therefore Turkish citizens could then come to the UK under freedom of movement. Uh, this is Penny Morton, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove during the referendum campaign.
6: I do not think that the EU is going to keep Turkey out. I think it is going to join.
1: As far as I know, <laughs> last time I looked it, the government wants to accelerate Turkish membership money.
2: The evidence is that the British government and the European Union are actively uh, working towards Turkey joining the European Union and Turkish citizens being able to travel throughout the EU. So,
1: none of that came to pass in the end, uh, Catherine. Uh, Turkey's not joined the EU and, and Britain isn't. In it, where where would you put British-Turkish relations now? <laughs>
8: um, well, they they weren't done any favors by some of that rhetoric in 2016. But I mean, I think realistically, uh, th- there was a lot of spin put on the whole Turkey-EU membership. Um, Issue. I think that Britain is in a very similar situation to uh, quite a lot of its Western allies, in particularly in regard to the um, war in Ukraine and relations with Russia and with China over uh, Turkey's role. Uh, so it's. I think it's, it's. almost more important multilaterally now than than. Um, bilateral British-Turkish relations. Um, obviously, as, as Gallup said, Turkey is a NATO member and is acting as a bit of a spoiler at some stages in that, uh, vetoing Sweden joining, um, it, but, and yet is playing the continuing to play this unique role it has where it's able to capitalise on Russia's isolation uh, and its own foot in the Western camp, To um, to do things like uh, you know that are even useful to the West at the same time as everyone is frustrated by uh, Erdogan's transactional mercurial behavior um, he was able for example to get through um a, a grain deal for ukraine um last year during the war that did manage to unblock the um, black sea ports for a while so um, i think that britain is very much treads as carefully as most western allies do uh where turkey is concerned
1: funny um, maybe i ask you all the same question there's been a lot of talk about is has populism peaked uh, are we you know are we going back to more more straightforward democratic boring old uh, boring old politics lots of people were looking to turkey as the next uh, signal that that was the case if erdogan does win uh, as uh, you know at the moment the results coming in suggest that he, he might yet uh, do does that signal that we still have something to worry about in regard to the the, the rise of, of populism and autocracies so, let's start with you first of all Gallup.
7: I think, uh, I mean, this formed the global narrative of this election. Uh, I mean, not only this election, actually, in recent years, all the elections that we have seen in Brazil, in, uh, in Hungary, et cetera, you know, in UK, to some extent, was traded within the larger context of the populism versus democracy. And I think that has been very much the story of the, uh, of the, uh, the election in Turkey. And the results suggest, actually, almost all the polls are getting the things wrong, because like, one thing that has miserably failed in this in this first round of the Turkish presidential election are the so-called respected polls, because almost <laughs> all of the respected polling company, they failed miserably when it comes to predicting the results, because almost all of them predicted, or, or many of them, the one that was respected, uh, predicted uh, a lead for uh, Kılıçdaroğlu, the opposition candidate, if not him winning in the first round outright. So I think that's uh, the phenomena of populism or the phenomena of the rise of nationalism in politics because this is the f- single yeah. most important factor in Turkish politics now. The nationalism, the n- different shade of it because in, in the West for quite some time there was an infatuation or obsession with the conception of Islamism in Turkish politics. Yeah. But yeah. I've enforced Turkish politics of the present day is not Islamism, it's a nationalism. The different manifestation of the nationalism from the Euro-Asianist leaning nationalism to more european-style far-right nationalism and that is the single most potent force that is driving the uh, the turkish uh, politics now yeah uh, and not only politics the France as well and i think we need to grasp what it means not only in turkish context but uh, in a larger international context how the new shape of the nationalism is defining the politics yeah. in uh in the contemporary international system
1: what, what do you think uh, nick have we, have we been reading this all wrong
2: no no i don't you know i i, I don't think so i mean i put it slightly differently i think I, I think what what the turkish situation demonstrates which definitely is you know a foot elsewhere in the world is polarization i mean i think it is a highly highly polarized society and getting more so and i think that is um you know worrying in terms of turkey's future stability i mean what what one hopes will happen um after the election is there'll be a huge huge focus on you know recovery after the earthquake um economic growth and and so on and and that could help the country um come together but um um but at the moment it feels very polarized Uh, just finally catherine uh, how long do you think it would be before Rishi sunak feels
1: able to uh, go and shake the hand maybe even invite president erdogan to the uk
8: uh, well, I haven't seen any congratulatory messages yet. Although it's a bit early. The first one I spotted this morning was from Iran, um, which I think might tell you something about uh, the future of democracy in Turkey. I think it's it's going to be important to see what Erdogan, if he does uh, get through, uh, if it goes to runoff and he gets through it again, what he does with the country and what he does with the power that he's also accumulated in Parliament. Because um, remember, there wasn't a presidency in Turkey until he invented it um so uh, i think that we've got to be aware that elections have a lot more uh, sorry uh, democracies are a lot uh, to do with a lot more than just elections um so yeah i think everyone around the world will be looking at what what erdogan does next
1: and that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and let me know what you think email me matt at times.radio but for now for me matt Cholly is goodbye